Let's get it. Monday, July 13th, 2020. Born the Battle. Brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. The podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories. And puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope everyone had a great week outside of podcast land. You know, my wife and I, we've been at the party barn here for the past six months. And early on, I decided that I did not want one single box in the house. I wanted them all unpacked. So, I set out on a mission to unpack every single box. You know, I moved over 10 times in the Marine Corps in 11 years. And heck, I've even moved five times since I EAS'd five years ago. So, there's been a lot of moving around. And I mean, we have had boxes that hadn't been opened in almost 10 years. No more, I say. I am dead set on getting completely unpacked this time and seeing what we're really going to keep. The light is at the end of the tunnel. But now there's so much stuff all over the basement. Uh, Trust the process, right? Some hard decisions will be made, but this will be a good thing in the long run. And eventually we'll be able to pare down what we really need and get a garbage bag for the rest. All right, so before we get into anything else on this, this week's episode... If you subscribe to the VA Updates email list, you may have gotten an email last week announcing the VA Podcast Network. This is something that I've been working on when I'm not working on Born the Battle. Uh, Podcasts in the VA Podcast Network are recognized by VA's national headquarters as official VA podcasts. We currently have four release podcasts, so it's a good time to announce it. In addition to Born the Battle, the first four include... The Vets First Podcast. And if you remember, we had their hosts on a couple of months ago. Um, They are a couple of VA researchers, and their serial podcast explores the world of VA research, both from a researcher perspective and from the veteran perspective. Uh, Some really great episodes in there. The first season's in the books. It's posted, and they have episodes about TBI, curing kidneys with hepatitis, and more. And the next one is the... Myrick short takes on suicide prevention. If you just search for short takes on suicide prevention on any on your podcasting app, you'll find it. Myricks are VA's educational and research centers of excellence uh, for mental illness, and the Rocky Mountain Myricks focus is on suicide. So, with that podcast, you'll hear from experts within that area of study, um, both in and out of VA. It's an episodic podcast that posts at least a couple of times a month. Uh, and they've been out in podcast land for at least three and a half years already. So there's a lot of content already there. Go ahead and check them out. And finally, our newest addition is Fresh Focus. It is produced by nutritionists up in the Marion VA healthcare system. And they produce a serial podcast on proper nutrition. And they just released their first season on the healthy plate method. And they're already working on their second season. So, including Born the Battle, those are the first podcasts of our brand new VA Podcast Network. If any of those pique your interest, go ahead, check them out, subscribe, review, rate, show them some love. Okay, a couple ratings, also one review this week. This one is from Colonel Skip. Says five stars. Inspiring, insightful, and fun. Listen to the first episode with author G. Michael Hoff. This Marine understands Carpe Diem as a prolific writer engaging host who ties in military service. I look forward to many more episodes. 
Doug G. Skip Mondragon, MD, Colonel, United States Army, retired, author of Wrestling Depression is Not for Wimps. Uh, Colonel Skip, thank you for the kind words. And as a writer, I'm glad to interview a guest that spoke to you and introduced you to this podcast. And finally, thank you for reviewing as your review helped our podcast climb in the top 10 in the government category last week, which made it even more visible and hopefully leads other veterans to discover Born the Battle. So thank you. Okay, let's take a look at news releases. We got four from VA, but I also got one sent to me from Housing and Urban Development that I'm going to kick off with. It states that, HUD announced recently the availability of $50 million in HUD Veterans Affairs Supportive Housing, otherwise known as HUD-VASH, funding that will support approximately 6,000 new HUD-VASH vouchers. Uh, HUD administers these vouchers in partnership with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, and these vouchers enable homeless veterans and their families to access affordable housing and an array of supportive services. So what does that mean? That means that local public housing authorities must apply to HUD-VASH to secure the vouchers to serve veterans in their communities. So if you're a veteran who already has an application in, you don't have to do anything. This is just an alert that more than 6,000 vouchers will be available soon in communities across the country. And that means funding for 6,000 veterans and their families to get them off the street. And as Martha Stewart used to say, that's a good thing. And as always, if you're a veteran or know of a veteran at risk for homelessness or they're homeless, please contact the National Call Center for Homeless Veterans at 1-877-4-AID-VET. That's 1-877-424-3838. And that gets, that gets the ball rolling. Okay, the first VA news release says, for immediate release, VA reinstates in-person services at 100 hospitals across the country. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced recently, as of mid-June, more than 100 VA medical facilities and medical centers have reinstated at least one in-person service within their direct healthcare delivery system after certain services were temporarily on hold or reduced due to COVID-19. VA leadership reviews and considers many factors daily, including community infection rates, to determine when it is safe for a facility to expand services. VA also continues to increase telehealth appointments for veterans not in need of in-person services, which is now seen more than a 1,000% increase, totaling more telehealth visits in March 2020 than all of 2019. VA will continue to use and expand personalized telehealth options, phone consults, and wellness checks regardless of a veteran's geographic location. For more information on which VA medical facilities are providing in-person services, contact your local VA medical facility. Okay, next one says, for immediate release, VA hits a major milestone in the resolution of legacy appeals. The Department of Veterans Affairs announced recently it has reached a significant milestone in the overall legacy appeals resolution plan with the Veterans Benefits Administration completing actions on nearly all of the non-remand legacy appeals as of the 4th of July. The non-remand inventory includes notices of disagreement and substantive appeals filed with VBA in the legacy system before the passage of the Veterans Appeals Improvement and Modernization Act of 2017. In conjunction with hitting this milestone, VBA's Appeals Management Office will be now known as the Office of Administrative Review, 
Under the new name, OAR will work to reduce VBA's legacy remand inventory, administer VBA's higher-level review program, and oversee VBA's decision review operation centers, which processes AMA higher-level reviews, higher-level review returns, and board remands and grants. VA continues to be on target to meet the goal of resolving legacy appeals under the Legacy Appeals Resolution Plan by December of 2022. For more information on appeals, visit benefits.va.gov. Okay, third one says, for immediate release, White House and the VA launch REACH, which is a call to action to engage the nation in preventing suicide. As veterans already know, the nation is facing a suicide epidemic, with 132 Americans dying every day by suicide. For veterans, as we already know, the suicide, the overall suicide rate is 1.5 times higher and the female veteran suicide rate is 2.2 times higher than the general population, of course, after adjusting for age and gender. The White House and Department of Veterans Affairs recently launched the REACH National Public Health Campaign aimed at empowering all Americans to play a critical role in preventing suicide. The goal of REACH is to change the conversation around suicide by urging people to recognize their own risk and protective factors, as well as the risk and protective factors of their loved ones. Their website, wearewithinreach.net, again, that's wearewithinreach.net, all one word, provides information to help people recognize risk factors for suicide, including financial stress, chronic illness or pain, isolation and mental illness in themselves and in their loved ones. It also links to resources that can provide assistance in avoiding the hopelessness that can lead to suicide. The website also includes information on shields that protect against suicide, such as belonging to a faith-based community, healthy family relationships, having a purpose in life, and strong problem-solving skills. The campaign will be archiving their messages and imagery by using the hashtag ReachNow immediately after the launch on a wide range of digital platforms. And as always, if you or someone you know are experiencing thoughts of suicide or in crisis, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline for confidential support 24 hours a day at 1-800-273-8255. Veterans and service members, including the National Guard and Reserve, who need immediate help should call the 1-800 number and press 1 to reach the Veterans Crisis Line, or they can chat online at veteranscrisisline.net forward slash get hyphen help forward slash chat or text 838-255. You know, shortly after the reading this, I went to wearewithinreach.net because I was curious as a veteran. And there are topics on there to recognize within yourself and others and whatnot. But to me, the real value of that website was the National Suicide Hotline way up top. It was right there. You can see it if you look up top. I, I, I missed it a couple times after I scrolled, but if I went to the very top, there it was. And at the bottom, at the very bottom, you can sign up for their mailing list for both mail and I think snail mail. Don't quote me on the snail mail, but if you sign up for the email, you can then tailor it to sign up for certain things. And I personally, I signed up for the prevents updates, the updates on state and community efforts, resources, telehealth opportunities, suicide prevention programs. Uh, I did not sign up for social media updates, which, you know, um, I, I personally didn't check that one, but to each their own. I, I, I'll get my social media updates through social media, not my email. 
and you can also sign up for suicide uh, research. So if this is a topic that affects you or your loved ones or your battle buddies, uh, to me, that mailing list is something I would definitely consider signing up for. Okay, and the final news release says, for immediate release, Help Heal Veterans donates craft kits to VA hospitals to help provide activities for veterans who are alone. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced recently that Help Heal Veterans has provided nearly 50,000 craft kits to isolated veterans in over 90 VA facilities since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in March. The department's VA Voluntary Service and Recreational Therapy Service are working with VA providers to identify veteran inpatients and outpatients to receive the craft kits, which will be accompanied by other leisure activities and information about VA programs and services. VA recreation therapists nationwide are sharing that veterans living with disabilities, pain, anxiety, addiction, or depression, especially during the pandemic, are enjoying the craft kits and are gifting the finished crafts to friends, family, and other veterans. VA peer support specialists have also distributed the craft kits to veterans in the community. Help Heal Veterans has had a long-standing partnership with VA and provide kits like masks, leatherwork, woodwork, jewelry, paint-by-numbers, needlecraft, poster art, scrapbooks, model cars, airplanes, boats, and more. In a recent Help Heal Veterans survey of veterans who have used the kits, 94% polled reported the kits gave them a more positive outlook on life and that 98% reported the kits divert their attention to healthy coping practices. The therapeutic and rehabilitative benefits of crafting for VA patients is especially significant for veterans living with PTSD and traumatic brain injuries. To learn more about recreation therapy, visit www.prosthetics.va.gov forward slash rec therapy. To volunteer with VA, you can visit volunteer.va.gov. All right, so our next guest is a big proponent of recreational therapy as well as many other kinds of therapies, but you'll see why I would say recreational therapy first. Uh, We did this interview fairly recently, and you know, with the outdoor season in full swing, I think this is a good time to bring this to you. He is an Army veteran, a licensed therapist in the state of Colorado, which is his new home. But before becoming a therapist, he was a backcountry ranger, a trail builder, a professor of outdoor education, an Appalachian caretaker, and ridge runner. All in all, in Appalachia, up in Upper New York, he has camped out for more than 1,000 nights, has climbed over 2,000 summits in his lifetime, he's probably closer to 3,000 than 2,000, and has hiked more than 15,000 miles, which, which, are, which are just crazy numbers. And now, he has taken his outdoor prowess to Colorado and the Rockies. Oh, and he's also an author. It was a super interesting conversation, and I'm happy to bring it to you. So without further ado, here is Army veteran Eric Schlimmer. Enjoy. First of all, Adam says hi. Um, All right. A fellow coworker who recommended you. Um, He said, hey, you, you, you know, for the podcast, you have to talk to this dude. (laughs) Well, I'm flattered. (laughs) um i'm finally i'm glad we finally got a chance to link up man uh it's been a struggle with both of our schedules since what last fall yeah you might be right yeah it's been a while and uh i do think it was a good idea to wait 
a little bit. Um, yours truly, and probably just about everybody else, is really itching to get outside. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, you know, I think what we were talking fall, winter, but yeah, it's it, this is a great time to to do this episode because like it's now what late spring, which is a great time to talk about getting outdoors. It is, yeah, great time of the year. Um, you're currently in Colorado, right? I am. I live in Colorado Springs. I moved here this past November. Man, I uh, I always wanted to get out there. Uh, I got an old army, but another army friend who's uh, out there in Denver. Uh, I've seen the airport, yep. but I, I look forward to get out for, for a weekend or, or even a week if I can. Well, what I tell my standard line is um, no place is perfect, but Colorado is close. Really? <laughs> it's pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you just moved there. Where'd you move back? Where'd you move from? I moved from upstate New York. I'm a lifelong New Yorker up until November. Oh, okay. Huh. What was the reason behind going to Denver? Well, there were a couple of reasons. Um, I had been to Colorado about a decade ago on a, a hiking slash road trip and really enjoyed my time here. And then I was on my Huts for Vets trip this past summer. And uh, it just reaffirmed that uh, Colorado is really consistent with my values. There's uh, a lot of genuinely friendly people. It's a, a, a very relaxed culture uh, compared to the Northeast. And the weather is phenomenal. And since I'm a, a long distance hiker and a mountain climber, it's kind of like a second hiking life for me. So Colorado has thousands and thousands of peaks above 10,000 feet. I've been up like maybe 70 so far. So I've got more than enough workout here to since, last me a Since you've been there, you've been up 70? Yeah, pretty. <laughs> I'm a pretty active hiker. <laughs> yeah, I usually... Uh, wow. Yeah, somewhere between 100 and 150 peaks a year, probably. Wow, um, I think you're the you're the second um, person that is a an, well, uh, Benjamin Breckheimer, who's who's in the archives. He's he's a he's looking to climb the big seven seven okay. summits. Yeah. Um, so if you get a chance, check check, and if you're listening to this, check that one out. If you're if you're an outdoorsy type of guy. Um, well, Eric, I wanted to start this interview like we start 95 percent of all interviews here on Born the Battle. Um, it starts with the time that you either decided to join the military or were, or were drafted in the military. Cause of course not all of us are just decide. Right. Um, when was that time for you? When, when did you say, Hey, let's go be all you can be. Right. Uh, that was back in 1990. So in 1990, I was a junior in high school. So I was 16 years old. And I'm not sure if they have it now, but back then we had the delayed entry program. So what you could do is sign up for the military up to a year in advance. And that's basically what I did. And uh, mm -hmm. I graduated June 1991. I was 17 years old and shipped down to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. I went down just a week after high school graduation, just kind of wanted to get out of that small town I grew up in and see the world a little bit. Uh, again, I'm not, I'm not even sure if they do it these days. Back then, you could sign up for two years. And uh, it was great. So uh, almost a, a three-year enlistment when you do the, the two-year active duty and all the training. So uh, yeah, uh, mid-1990, I said, well, yeah, I think I'll go in the Army for two main reasons. One, nobody else was going to pay for college. So I wanted to get the college money and I just wanted to do something different. I've always kind of been a black sheep in many aspects of my life. And I thought, 
uh, joining the army would be a little bit different than what uh, my colleagues were doing in high school. Got you. So what, what's the name of the small town you're from? Uh, Chestertown, New York. It's up in the Adirondack Mountains. And uh, when I was there in the uh, early 1990s, it, it was quite small. My graduating class in high school was 30. Uh, it doesn't oh, get wow. much smaller than that in a little parts of the U.S. I actually grew up in a, a good-sized city when I was a little kid uh, outside of New York City, but uh, I regard as really growing up in the mountains of upstate New York. Did you say Chester, Chestertown? Chestertown, Chester, yes. Chestertown. I think I grew up in the, the western Chestertown, like the Pacific Crest Trail Chestertown. I grew up in a town called Hump Tulips, Washington. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, pop, population 300, uh, right right near the Olympic National Rainforest. Ah, so, very nice. If you can have a Western Chester town, I, you know, I guess we're... <laughs> kind of like a sister uh, cities in a way. There, there you go. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, you're also a Desert Storm veteran, correct? That's what Adam told me. Well, I'm a Gulf War era veteran. The, the closest I've been to the Middle East is when I went to Cape Cod a couple of years ago. So I've actually, <laughs> I've actually uh, never been to the Middle East. It was, it's just a, I was actually talking to somebody about this the other day. It's an interesting situation. Um, so when I enlisted, it was during the height of the first Gulf War. And then everybody was coming home while I was in basic training. And so mm. I finished basic infantry school airborne school and got sent to the 82nd Airborne Division. And I still mm -hmm. remember we had a company of 130 infantrymen and myself and one other guy. We were the only two without a combat infantryman badge. We were the only two in the entire company mm. who just showed up a little too late and didn't go overseas. So yeah, a Gulf War, uh, Gulf War era veteran, but certainly not a combat veteran. Uh, I mean, it was a, such a short war, you know, what was it? 30 days. It, it would yeah. be, it's, it's not like it was uh, post nine 11 where it was like, okay, five years later, I still have a chance to get into the war, you know, right. <laughs> it, right. it, it was And you know, it's, it's amazing that we're coming up on the 25th anniversary of that in December, if you can believe it. Oh, uh, time flies. And, uh, it was actually kind of funny. I was somewhere here in Colorado Springs, um, recently and i saw a gentleman with a, a a gulf war veteran hat on and he was probably <laughs> almost 70 and i was like oh my gosh oh my goodness you know maybe he was over there as a first sergeant or something like that and so he's yeah. you know 40 years old 35 years old and uh, just looking at him it had me realize how long ago that really was wow yeah, you don't think about the the older generation that went over there, and then you go, "Wow, yeah, they right. would be about yeah. that that age." It's incredible. So that that two year enlistment. Now, I had a Marine when I was in, and I we it was very rare, but I did have one Marine that was on a two year enlistment. Mm -hmm. Was that because of the war? No, no, it was uh, around before before the first Gulf War, and it was around after the first Gulf War, and I think they designed it for. People like me. So I <clears throat> was about to graduate high school. I said, well, what am I going to do with my life? I'll go into the military. And the Air Force and the Marines and the Navy all demanded four years. They, they weren't going to budge on that at all. 
And yeah. I wanted to be cautious. I, I knew nothing about the military. You know, what if I get in there and I hate it and then I'm stuck in there for four years? So, of course, all branches were in one big recruiting office that I visited. And the Army recruiter said, yeah, you don't have to do four. He's like, just try two. He goes, what's the worst that can happen? You know, you're in for two years and you can get out with your college money or you could just reenlist. And so I was attracted to the Army mainly uh, because the commitment was half of the other branches. Because again, I, I knew nothing about the military as a high school kid. Yeah, yeah, those are really rare to see nowadays, uh, and I don't even know if they still offer them. I know, like I said, it was a, the Marine Corps did it for like a year or two, mm-hmm. and then and then they they, they they cut the program. But um, while you were in, either give me either a best friend or or your or your greatest mentor. Boy, um, there are many many to pick from, so so that's good. Um, <laughs> And one of the greatest things I got out of the military is the camaraderie. Um, mm. And I kind of uh, feel for civilians who've never had that experience. So, for example, um, I have friends, fellow paratroopers I was in with uh, 25 years ago, and we still keep in touch. We haven't seen each other physically in 25 years, but those are the type of relationships if if any of them showed up at my door and they said, hey, dude, I need a place to crash for a couple of weeks. He would be welcome in and my home yeah. would be his home. It's just great. Um, and the NCOs and the officers I had, uh, really, really good people. Um, so <laughs> uh, it's very difficult to pick. Uh, it, it might well be impossible. Um, but if I had to pick somebody, I would probably pick um, my platoon sergeant. My platoon sergeant was Sergeant Myers. And of course, you'd never forget your platoon sergeant. Here we are 25 years later, and I know him. Sure. Um, a highly accomplished soldier. He was one of the very few uh, Pathfinder qualified soldiers in our unit. He was a jump master. He has combat infantryman badge from the first Gulf War, and he graduated from Ranger School. So this guy really knows his stuff. Very professional soldier, obviously a lifer. You know, he's just going to stay in. Yeah. And a friend of mine actually ran into him in Iraq when they were over there, and he was a command sergeant major. So just an outstanding guy. Now, what I like now, there were um, a lot of very good soldiers and very good leaders in the 82nd Airborne. And a lot who have been to these specialized schools, and they're just very highly motivated, successful people. But what I liked about Sergeant Myers best is that he didn't demand that I be like him. He, he didn't need hmm. me to go to ranger school. He didn't need me to uh, maybe have that type of commitment in the military. And I remember talking to him, and that was also rare. When I was in, yeah, you just kind of didn't talk to NCOs and officers. You know, there's that great divide between the yeah. lower rank PFCs and the specialists and the upper echelon. But occasionally we would just talk, which I found very comforting. And I could bring up concerns with him and ask him about his experiences. And he basically said to me, hey, look, man, what you're doing is cool. He's He's like, I get it. I get it. You're just going to go in, you sign up for two years, you're going to get the college money, and you're out of here. 
He goes, but this is the thing. When you're here, you do your job. He's like, that's the deal. And I was like, all right, that's cool. So a very authentic communicator with realistic expectations of his soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's, it's, it's good to find leaders like that when you, when you find them and, and, and are able to learn from them and, and take, take something like that away from right. their yeah. style of leadership. Absolutely. So did you just now, did you do the two years, the three years, and then just decide to get out? Or did you, did you say, Hey, Sergeant Myers, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to re up. Did you surprise Sergeant Myers? <laughs> uh, 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 Sergeant Myers had uh, no look of express, uh, no look of surprise when Eric Schlimmer told him, I am not reenlisting. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> that did not catch him off guard in the least. He's like, very well. <laughs> uh, yeah. Almost everybody I know who were, uh, you know, E2, E3, E4, they're in for two, three, four years. We all got yeah. out. O only a couple stayed in. And um, those who stayed in, they made a career of it and it was great. Um, now, one of the big reasons I didn't re-enlist was I was quite naive about the military. So, hmm. my entire two years plus my training, it's just infantry, infantry, infantry. You jump out of a plane, you shoot guns, you blow up stuff, you haul a ridiculous heavy pack through the woods of North Carolina. And it wasn't much fun. And I, I was so naive back then. I was just really a kid. I was. It sounds like what you're doing today almost. <laughs> yes, yes. It's the civilian version, which means it's it's actually fun. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Sorry, so, you were talking about the naiveness of it. Yeah, I was just kind of like, now obviously I knew there were all different kinds of MOSs, all different kinds of jobs. But I was so immersed in that infantry lifestyle, I was presuming that kind of every job is like this. You know, so every job mm -hmm. in the military, they yell at you. And every job in the military, you're worked just half to death, you know, and you're kept up for a couple of days at a time and stuff like that. And so it's interesting. Uh, I had a friend who stayed in, he did his 25 years and retired, and he was in my platoon. And uh, he re-enlisted, but he went into psychological warfare and got to work with special special operations forces and stuff like that. And he's mm. like, dude, it was awesome. And he goes, it was totally, it totally different experience than what we had as infantrymen in the 82nd Airborne. You know, I, I still say that's that's got to be one of the toughest jobs in the military is airborne infantry. It's just a very demanding field to be in. So no, I didn't yeah. re-enlist and I, I I think I was just not aware of the opportunities uh branch wide that the army could have offered me. Got you. So if you would have known uh different job fields, would you would you have reconsidered? I think I would have. I would have reconsidered if I picked a job and maybe had the opportunity to go visit that unit and just kind of mm. see what people are like. Um, because it just, it ranges greatly the type of leadership and the type of missions that these units have. I, I could probably see myself, um, you know, uh, maybe re-enlisting back then in a 
job that was less physically demanding, less stressful. Um, but I didn't have that opportunity, you know, even taught when you, when I was ETSing, when I was getting out of the military, one of the requirements is I have to go see the recruiter on the base on Fort Bragg. The career planner. Yeah. Yeah. And I went down there and I was like, dude, ain't going to happen. I was like, I'm, I'm out of here, man. I'm going to go to college. And there was no discussion of, um, well, Hey, you don't have to stay here. You know, you, we want you to stay in the army. It was kind of like, Hey, you can reenlist your same exact job and I can probably get you into ranger school. And I was like, I don't think you're hearing me. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't, this isn't what I want to do. I'm not really interested in doing this type of work for another four years. And it was kind of, you know, it was kind of like he shrugged his shoulders and was like, well, I don't want to tell you. And I I was like, (laughs) okay, uh, you're maybe not the best salesman I've met because I feel the same exact way. Maybe worse (laughs) than when I walked into your office. So, uh, so I got out and it worked out great. And in the beginning, that was really the goal. Go in. I was just going to, I was just going to say, man, it's like, uh, you wouldn't have had the experiences that you had afterwards if you would have stayed in, you know, everyone had right. their own journey. Right. You know? Yeah. It, it was get, go in, get some college money, have a really good experience, make some really good friends, you know, challenge myself. Um, and I really got everything out of it that I was looking for. Yeah. It sounds like it was a great chapter in your life, you know? Um, it was, and, it was, and you had, and you have, you have many chapters, more chapters to go. Um, I do. Yes. So, so what, what was it like getting out in, what was it? 93. I, you know, I talked to a lot of people that get out after Vietnam or, or post nine 11 or during the recession that we just had, you know, back in 2011, I don't talk to many people that got out in the nineties mm-hmm. in the Clinton years, yeah. you know, <laughs> what was it like? Um, awkward, uh, comes to mind uh, and difficult. So, hmm. and it's a very common theme in the military is yeah. when you're in the military, you have a purpose and you're important. And so the example that I often give people who aren't really familiar with military culture, I said, yeah, as a paratrooper, so I used to jump out of planes and you would be in the aircraft and it's flying over the woods of North Carolina. And you do a final check of your gear before you jump out. And what that involves, and I have a, a colleague standing in front of me. I'm standing behind him and we're facing uh, towards the back of the plane. And I check his main chute, his static line, uh, hooked up to the cable inside, everything, dude, you're good to go. And I pat him on the shoulder. And that means he's good to go. And he has complete confidence that I know what I'm doing. Meanwhile, the gentleman behind me is doing the same exact thing. I can't look at my chute. It's on my back. I can't look at the static line. I don't know if there's a problem or not. So the gentleman behind me is doing the same exact thing. And of course, we're doing that up and down the entire line. And that's a perfect example of how you always take care of the person next to you. Absolutely. Right. So it wasn't so much... Well, I'm just going to make sure my gear's in order. No, it's I check the guy in front of me. Somebody's checking me. And then when you get out of the military, and it's very sudden. Mm -hmm. You know, I ended my enlistment in North Carolina. And a day later, I woke up in New York 
as a civilian. It's so incredibly sudden. And of course, in my unit, there were mostly combat veterans. And so that transition must have seemed more intense. And so I get out and then, you know, about six months, maybe five months later, I'm in college and everybody's just out for themselves. Everybody's just looking out for themselves. I don't know anybody. I don't trust anybody. No one's offering to help me. I'm not offering to help them. And it was a very lonely, solitary journey through college compared to the military. Especially if you're not used to it, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's disheartening almost. I spent, I found it to be disheartening in, in a sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're like, why, why isn't society more like helping your fellow man, you know? <laughs> and, right. Cause that's what, that's what you're so used to when you, when you're in the military, everybody, I mean, the, the camaraderie is there, the love for each other is there. Um, and even if it's like, I personally may not like you, mm-hmm. but when I'm wearing the, when I'm wearing this uniform and we're, we're doing, making a goal for, for whatever we're doing for our, 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 our job, you know, whether it be infantry or combat camera or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. you're there for each other. Even if you personally don't like the person, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. That's, you're absolutely right. Um, I had favorites when I was in the military and I had people I really didn't like working with, but it, it didn't matter who was standing next to me in the aircraft. I'm just going to do my job and make sure this person's good to go. And the person behind me is returning the favor. And yeah, when I got out into civilian life, it's kind of just, it's almost like everybody was in like a trance or a daze, just totally doing their own thing, oblivious to the people around them and maybe how they can work together. It was just a very odd uh, transition. Yeah, no, I I, I can one hundred percent empathize with that with that sentiment. Absolutely. Um, so your bio says that you've all that you were employed. Uh, in Appalachia and in Catskills backcountry as a ranger, trail builder, caretaker. Um, One, is that part of being a park ranger? Is that U.S. Forest Service? Is that uh, who employed you? And two, what was your professional journey to to get to that type of career from college? Right. So I got out of the military. It was Christmas uh, 1993 and then I think I started college just a couple months later and wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Like most college students, I had no clue yeah. where I was going to end up after my university. And um, heard about this unique program uh, in the Adirondacks at a small community college, North Country Community College, Wilderness Recreational Leadership. Hmm. Wow, what is this? And basically, it's a program where they take students and they teach you how to plan and lead expeditions and then teach others how to do that. So it concentrates on like, like Lewis and Clark style. No, more like, um, you know, if you were going to maybe have a, a climbing expedition, uh, on some big mountain or, um, you're going to lead, uh, people into the mountains, maybe younger people and teach them how to backpack and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's centered on uh, just hard skills of backpacking, some climbing, winter camping, canoeing, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then 
uh, probably about 60% of the program was the leadership components. You know, how do you lead? How do people respond to different leadership styles, communication, all that good stuff. So I got that associate's degree and then I followed the lead of a good friend of mine who lives in Lake Tahoe. At the time, he was a ski bum. This is the mid-1990s. And the man <laughs> is brilliant. He came up with what he <laughs> he came up with what he called the reverse retirement plan. And so the reverse retirement plan works like this. Through your 20s and 30s, you regard yourself as retired. So you sleep on a lot of couches and you climb a lot of mountains and you work part time and and maybe you hike some long distance trails and you travel and then you grow up when you're 40. And that's basically what I did. So I was doing a lot of seasonal work. So I worked as a backcountry ranger for the state of New York in the Adirondack Park and the Catskill Park. I was a trail builder for a couple of private organizations, the National Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service. And then I was a caretaker uh, and ridge runner on the Appalachian Trail up in Maine. So basically what I'm doing is uh, going to school one semester a year, working about six months of the year, and then traveling for two months and paid my own way. Um, but it was a very rugged, bare bones lifestyle. I still remember I lived in the back of my Subaru wagon in a gravel pit in New Hampshire for an entire summer and just ate ramen and peanut butter. So it's a very scrappy <laughs> life, but I enjoyed a lot of freedom. And uh, not to get too far ahead in the story, I eventually got my master's degree and now I actually have a real job and I'm all grown up. But <laughs> the uh, reverse retirement plan is absolutely brilliant. So that's kind of how I got into that type of work. And those are the jobs that I had. I've been very fortunate. I've spent a lot of time in the mountains getting paid to be there. Yeah. So you were, um, so were all these just kind of temp gigs for like a summer here and a, and a, and a, you know, to go to school paid, you know, paid for your school. I, like what, I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of different employers, you know, some federal, some private. Um, yeah. Were you were you ever offered like a full time position and one spot, and you were just like, "Hey, no, I, I got this plan. It's called reverse retirement." <laughs> yeah, I couldn't abandon the reverse retirement plan. It was going pretty well. So, uh, how I designed who I worked for in general, the seasons last from May to October, basically mm -hmm. just the the months between when the snow flies. And so, I'd work for an employer for two maybe three years in a certain area. So for example, one of the first outdoor jobs I had was caretaker and ridge runner on the Appalachian Trail in Maine. I chose Maine because I wanted to hike a lot of mountains in Maine on my days off. So I would mm. be in the mountains getting paid. I would hike every single day on my day off, go back to the Subaru wagon, eat some more ramen, hike some more. And then I would take a job in the White Mountains of New Hampshire mm -hmm. for two or three years. So on my days off, I could hike there. And so I had these positions uh, up and down the East Coast, mostly in the Northeast, where I could get experience working with different people, working with different agencies, different talents. There's a big difference between being a backcountry ranger and a professional trail builder. And then I had this new country to explore on my days off. Very interesting. Um so, Eric, what's your, what's your full-time gig now? You said you're all grown up. Well, I have a couple irons in the fire. I, I think I get 
bored very easily if that's not evident by now. I don't know I, what I, is. I think I can I think I can tell that. But <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. No. Yeah. Uh, very wonder wandering a very wandering spirit, which I can I can definitely appreciate being from Washington State. Yes, yes. Uh a couple things. Uh I have my own small business and there are two components to it. One is Beachwood Books, which is my own little publishing house. So I write books and I uh, publish them and sell them through that. Um, I'm also the founder of a, a long distance hiking route that crosses the Adirondack Park of upstate New York. So I work on that. I do a fair amount of public speaking. Well, not nowadays with the virus, but usually I do a fair amount of public speaking about my adventures, where I've been. I think people regard them as inspirational programs. And then I'm also um, a therapist here in Colorado Springs, just started that last week. So like a certified therapist, a board certified not? Yep. So I have my master's in clinical social work, and then I'm a licensed social worker in New York and Colorado. So um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a therapist here at a private practice in Colorado Springs, and I specialize in talk therapy. So, you know, you come in, talk about your feelings, and we can try to figure out a plan to get you on a better track through life. Very good. Very, very interesting. Um, you were talking about your two businesses, uh, not the book one, but the other one. What was, what's the other one again? Yeah. So the book one is uh, Beachwood Books. The other one is called Friends of the Trans Adirondack Route. And okay. basically the short story is in 2010, I was still living in upstate New York and I was intimately familiar with the Adirondack Mountains. I had climbed about 800 peaks in that range by then, and I worked as a backcountry ranger, and I was kind of looking for the next great adventure in that range. And long story short, I decided to hike across the entire park, and that's quite a hike. The, the park is 6 million acres, which is the yeah. size of Vermont. And basically, I became the first modern-day hiker to cross the park. It was the 240-mile trek. Mm. And I just kind of did it for fun. I don't know. I had a couple weeks to kill. I like to go hiking. No big deal. <laughs> and I got to the end and that hike was so rewarding and beautiful and wild. I said, hey, I bet somebody else would like to follow the route that I just hiked. And so I came out with a guidebook and a map set. And as we speak, we have three people on it. They just started this week trying to see if they can get from one end to the other. And overall, we've had about 20 people hike it so far. It opened in 2013. So we're getting a couple people a year and they seem to really enjoy it, but it's quite difficult. The success rate is uh, 56%. Hmm. So it's a very rugged footing, uh, wild areas. So for about every 10 who start, about six will make it to the other end. Um, what is that? I mean, is it like a do they have to sign up and pay money to go on this trail? How is this? Is this a nonprofit? What, what, what is the, the model for that? Right. So what I did, I, after I did that hike and I said, okay, let's start sharing this information. I just made my own small LLC. So friends of the trans Adirondack route LLC, the main goal when I hiked that route was to ensure that it's on public land. And so you could, kind of come and go as you please. There aren't too many rules and regulations along the route. It's totally free. you know. So for example, a lot of national parks, you would have to pay to get in. 
Not so with the Adirondack Park. It's actually in the state constitution that it's always okay. going to be free for use. There's a small half mile section of private land that hikers will cross, but I have a handshake agreement with the owner. So yeah, you basically show up at one end of the Adirondack Park and you've got your pack on. And uh, if you have enough pluck and luck, you will make it to the other end. Got you. Got you. What's the... um like where's the where's the, the the model where i mean do you make money is there is there a, a money to be made off this is there like how 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 what's the what's the model behind the llc yeah um people are under the impression that every author has a lot of money but i can assure you <laughs> <laughs> oh this is just a, this is a book this is a book well now the, series the and map series that they the, that they get the root with the map series and stuff Right. So what people will do Got is they'll you. say, oh, hey, I've heard about this trans Adirondack route thing. I think it's in upstate New York. And then they decide to hike it and they contact me and they say, hey, can you mail me the map set and guidebook so I don't get lost? And I say, yeah, sure. So I send it to them. So the, gotcha. the route itself on the ground, I really don't have anything to do with the route on the ground because what I did when I did that hike, I pieced together pre-existing trails. So it's not yeah. like I have to go out and build and maintain and stuff like that. So yeah, no, uh, you just kind of use what was there and, and just said, Hey, this is where I went. I used what was there. Yeah. I like to keep things simple. I like to keep things easy and uh, people really seem to be enjoying themselves. Very good. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, now I read somewhere that you, you, you're up to about a thousand nights camped, 2000, 2000 summits climbed and 15,000 miles hiked. Now, I, I grew up in the Olympic National Rainforest, but I don't think I've even come close to those numbers. Compared to that, I'm still sporting rookie numbers, you know. Um, <laughs> as for me, I, I'm, I was, I, you know, like I said, I grew up home tulips. I was mostly backwoods and logging roads, mm -hmm. a lot of mushroom picking, yeah. uh, a, lot, a lot of walking down river to find uh, good swimming holes or fishing growing up, but mm -hmm. not really trail hiking. What, what do you get out of trail hiking? Is, is it a sort of therapy for you? Yeah, there are a lot of things I get out of it. And it's a very, it's kind of a simple, straightforward, logical question, but there's just so many layers to the answer. Um, there are a couple things. I like the freedom. The freedom is probably the main reason I'm in the mountains. And 98, maybe even 99% of the hiking I've done has been solo. I rarely have a hiking partner for myriad reasons. So I'm usually out there by myself. And if I want to get up at dawn, I get up at dawn. And if I want to do a night hike, I do a night hike. And if I want to have Snickers bars for breakfast, that's what I have for breakfast. And I just <laughs> come and go as I please. And, you know, the, there was a great quote in the Adirondacks, an old Adirondack book, uh, why a hermit goes into the woods is because nobody tells him to pick it up or lay it down. He has no oversight. It's complete, utter freedom. And I like that freedom. The other thing is, of course, the natural beauty. There's just something about a snow-capped peak or a wildflower or a bird or having a great experience with a mammal. So I just saw some elk. I saw my first Rocky Mountain elk uh, last week when I was out in a national forest. It's just that fine mm. experience. The third thing I like is the amount of accountability that I must 
accept. So since I do pretty much all my hiking solo, if I take an incorrect compass bearing and end up on the wrong side of a mountain, that's on me. Or if I'm out there and I forgot a piece of gear, so I set up my camp and lo and behold, I forgot my spoon. Oh goodness, how am I going to eat this pot of ramen? That's on <laughs> me. I like being <laughs> accountable. And um, I, I do think most people are accountable, just like I think most people are good people. Yet in society, it's very easy to kind of pass off a poor decision or a shortcoming that you may have due to, well, this was, you know, an extraneous factor involved and it really wasn't my fault. And that that doesn't fly in the mountains. It, it's totally on you. Mm. Um, you have to plan well. You have to be very safe out there. You have to get home at the end of the day. And it's just this refreshing level of responsibility. Do you feel like uh, it's good training for accountability to be out in the mountains and then come back into society and go, you, you, do you find yourself being more accountable within the societal norms that you're talking about because of that experience in the mountains? I think so. Probably just because I've spent so much time in the mountains. So people will say to me, um, oh, what are you doing this week? And I'm, I'm going hiking. And they think it's kind of like a one-off thing. You know, they're like, oh, I went hiking twice last year, which is fine. <laughs> yeah. But they don't understand like this is just what I do. You know, this is kind of my my life and my life style, which I've been doing since the mid-1980s. And so it's not necessarily, well, I go hiking and I come back with this renewed level of res responsibility. It's just that in the mountains – when you're out there for several years off and on, you realize that you have to be very conscientious uh, in your decisions. And I think that has come out in my personality. People have described me as methodical. That's kind of <laughs> the, uh, mm. the word that keeps coming up. And I get what they're saying. You know, maybe I would prefer, hey, Eric's really cool. Or Eric's really fun to be around, <laughs> but they're like, yeah, Eric, he's he's very measured, he's very methodical and logical, and he kind of goes into things with a very clear mind, and um, and it works well in the mountains. It works very well in the mountains, and then some of those skills mm -hmm. can transfer back into quote unquote uh, normal life. Now back home, we have uh, the legend of Mick Dodge. Okay. Have you ever, have you, uh, he was, he's basically a guy that said, uh, he was, he was on discovery. He was on, uh, I think he had his own show, but it was, it's a guy that I think in the mid eighties said, you know what? The Olympic national rainforest, the whole river, that's where I'm going to live. Dropped everything out of society and just started being a hermit in the woods. I mean, he's barefoot mm -hmm. out there. Um, mm -hmm. have you ever thought about just going, you know what? We're done with society. I'm living in the mountains. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and you occasionally I'll come across these romantic stories like the gentleman you just talked about where they're out there and, <clears throat> you know, for no nefarious reasons, they just like the solitude and like the simplicity. Um, that is appealing. All the things that you described, all the appealing things that you described earlier is probably the one of the reasons they go out there. Absolutely. Right. right. Yeah. And I, I, I get it. 
I get it. I, I see how appealing that can be. Um, I like to keep my life very simple. And life in the mountains is very simple. I mean, if you think about it, you know, stay warm when you're cold and stay cool when you're hot and you eat and drink water, you know, don't fall off a cliff. And that's kind of it. It, uh, Backpacking, by the way, is obscenely safe. It's one of the, if not the safest sports in the world. So, for example, if you look at the numbers for soccer, soccer is more dangerous than backpacking. Hmm. But, you know, being in the mountains and rugged terrain, people kind of have this image of uh, people perishing, you know, cougars and bears and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually quite safe. So anyway, um, I, I get what they're doing. And when I do read an article or a book about somebody who's done that, it's just very appealing, very admirable. Yet I don't do that because I think I have a lot to offer here. So not mm. to say that those people didn't have anything to offer, but, you know, um, I just started working at this private practice, for example, and had my first clients and they were in pretty rough shape. And um, we're going to work through that together. And that is just about as rewarding as being in the mountains is just helping somebody. And how I got into uh, working as a therapist is people had helped me in the past. Yeah. And it was so awesome to show up and feel like you have nothing left in life and somebody kind of helps you get back on your feet and guides you, gives you some skills, and then you leave the nest renewed in life and now you have a better track. And that's why I work as a therapist to return the favor. So it's just um, – I think I have a lot of good things to do here and I think I wouldn't do as many good things in the woods by myself. So you got you have you have a dual um, self actualization almost both in the mountains and and in society. That's awesome. That's awesome to hear. Um, what do you think veterans who have never really experienced trail hiking what what benefits do you think that they can get out of it? Maybe someone that's from you know the city or has just never experienced what we're talking about. Right. Why well, I, I must. Um comfort all the infantrymen out there. It's nothing like you did in the military. So don't Mm. think it's going to be horrible. (laughs) It's going to actually be (laughs) quite enjoyable. Uh, Yeah, I I, uh, taught outdoor education at a couple universities for six, seven years. And the majority of my students were from urban environments. Of course, they were young. And they didn't have much experience in the outdoors, a lot, none, you know, never camped out. And so I guess it's best to answer your question with what I saw through these young people. Yeah. Uh, first, they show up with a lot of misinformation. And it all revolves around injury and death. And so we we're just talking about how the numbers of backpacking, if you look at them, very, very safe sport. But they were yeah. thinking, well, there are going to be bears and snakes. And then, well, I heard about this guy who got lost. And then this guy fell off. And they have this infatuation, this odd infatuation with serial killers. So, you know, we're, we're going to be camping yeah. and a serial killer is going to murder all of us. And <laughs> – you know, look, yeah. some, some, that's my wife there. Every time I talk about this, that's my wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And look, 
I, I should probably give a better answer since I'm a therapist, but I would just look at them and I would say, if somebody wanted to murder us, we would already be dead. Like, what is this person waiting for? They're just kind of like <laughs> <laughs> shadowing us for five days and then murder. Like, we would already be dead. And I'm not sure what comfort that brought to them, to be honest. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. But anyway, uh, you know, just a lot of danger and um, a lot of fear. And I understand. I understand. Okay. Let's get you out there and let's just see what it's like. And a lot of them picked up on the same things that I like. So they did like, after a couple of days, they liked not having their cell phones. They actually really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. um, of course, they like the scenery, you know, maybe see a bear. Oh, wow, look at that. And of course, just like I told them, the second the bear sees us or smells us, he's going to run the opposite direction. And so we would have these experiences that would debunk maybe what their friends or family members told them. And then we got out there and they enjoyed a simple life in beautiful terrain. And that would be an ideal setting for veterans. And that's why we have wilderness therapy programs for veterans is you can get out there and your mind slows down. You don't have your cell phone anymore. Uh, there's not a lot of activity. Not a lot happens in the woods. I mean, maybe you'll see an animal, a leaf will rustle here and there. Every 50 years, a landslide comes roaring down a mountain. But other than that, it's an extremely simple, calming atmosphere to be in. And that's very conducive to recovery. And some of these veteran programs, um, I'm actually involved in one here in Colorado, it's veteran-specific. So you're mm. out there with fellow veterans, and they range from ages to, you know, young 20s up to, you know, maybe their 60s, all different branches, some combat veterans, non-combat veterans. Oh, well, I was in Iraq. I was in Afghanistan. I was in Grenada, whatever. And it's this nice mix. But you know how it works. I mean, veterans have this bond, no matter what branch you're in or what your job was or what you saw and experienced. You Absolutely. still have that shared experience. So I can't think of a better setting for healing than a bunch of veterans in the mountains together. What's um? Give me a story of a maybe a veteran that you've taken out there and they've come back with a with a new perspective. Maybe. Yeah, this is actually a chapter in one of my books, and we have to go back about ten, uh, probably about ten years ago. And I was working at a veteran service organization in Albany, New York, our state capital. And it was kind of a one-stop shopping center for veterans. So you go in there and we help with employment and housing and criminal justice system and mental health care. We'll hook you up with VA services, all that mm. good stuff. So they kind of show up with nothing and they leave with everything they need. Great. Very rewarding. Gotcha. Yeah. There was a gentleman that worked there. We're still very good friends, um, Sean. And... He had never been hiking, and Sean is an Iraq combat veteran. He was in the 10th Mountain Division, and he was in um, a small scout-slash-recon squad that the 10th Mountain had a couple of, and he's working in teams of about six guys out in the boonies of Iraq and worked a little bit as a sniper. And he had 
obviously, some really intense um, combat experiences, you know, some good old fashioned firefights in Iraq yeah. and doing some unique missions and got out and, uh, you know, kind of typical story. Like we were talking about earlier, got out and he's like, wow, I have nothing in common with any of these people. So anyway, we get to talking at the office and, Oh, what are you doing this weekend? I go, I'm going hiking. Is that what, what, like, what would, what do you do? And I was telling him, Oh yeah, I spend most of my time off trail. It's called bushwhacking and I go out and I don't see anybody and it's wild and it's challenging. And he's, his ears <clears throat> really perk up. I say, Hey man, let's go this weekend. Okay. So he shows up and see, I had been out of the military for 20, 25 years. By then I've got this sleek backpack and my cool hiking poles and these fancy boots and all lightweight, high speed. He shows up like he's going into Fallujah. You know, he's still in <laughs> infantry mode. And he's got this huge, ridiculous pack, weighs a ton. And I go to lift it. And my arm almost pops out of the socket. And I go, my God, what is in here? And we open it up. He's got two gallons of water. He's got an e-tool. I was like, dude, we're not digging bunkers. Like, it's just like a casual hike through the woods. <laughs> There's plenty of streams. We're not going to run out of water. Like, let's ditch half this stuff. So we ditch half his stuff and off we go into the mountains. And no matter what kind of shape you're in, let's say you're a runner or you're a mountain biker, um, you're a technical climber. Hiking is different. You're using muscles that you really don't use in other sports. And conversely, if you're a really strong hiker, you're probably not going to be a particularly strong mountain biker unless you do that. So there's not this transfer really? of strength and skills. At least that's what I notice. Huh. So uh, I, I should be kind. Sean was pretty whooped. He was pretty whooped by the end of the day. We went up two mountains and um, we go back and then – I see him at work the next day and he's, he's hobbling around, you know, he's just, he's spent. <laughs> and again, he's using these muscles. He didn't even know he had, or the last time he used them was when he was in the 10th mountain division. Yeah. So, um, this happens with hikers off and you, you take them on a tough hike and they don't talk to you for like a day. And then they say, okay, I'm never hiking again. <laughs> that was really difficult, mm. but sure enough, about a week later, there's the question again. What are you doing this weekend? And then we went a couple more times. And it was quite beneficial for Sean, not just the physical activity, but he could relax. He said he felt very safe in the woods. And I think it's because he's out there with just one other guy, somebody he can trust. And the woods are their castle. You know, it's very safe out there. And actually the safest I feel in life is when I'm in the mountains at night. I just feel completely uh, invulnerable. You know, no, nobody, really? yeah, nobody can harm me. There's not going to be a confrontation. There's not going to be a problem. I'm just out there by myself and nobody knows I'm there. And I, I feel very safe. And I think that's what Sean got out of it. But long story short, we went on a, a couple more hikes and, uh, I wouldn't say he fell in love with the sport, uh, but we had a really good time, and I, I think it helped him on a 
on a personal level. Got you. Got you. Um, why night? What, what, what is it about night that, that makes you feel safe? Well, I think the only um, threat in my life is other humans. I can't really, you know, sure people die in motor vehicle accidents and you can get disease and stuff like that. But um, there's quite a, I, I find I am uneasiest around other people or feel most vulnerable around other people. And I have a tendency, um, well, I shouldn't say a tendency, I should be more honest. I am hypervigilant. I'm always keyed up in civilization. And then when I get out in the mountains, I can really relax. Uh, I particularly like nighttime. I became very familiar with being out in the darkness and traveling through it when I was in the military. So there were a lot of field um, exercises we had where we only moved at night and then we would just hole up during the day. And so I got used to that, just finding the night very comforting. That's where I got a lot of work done. Uh, that's where my unit really came together as a team was at night. So I have that background, but also at night in the mountains, who can find me? Nobody. It would be impossible to find me in the mountains at night. So I'm isolated from any threats that I think exist. And I certainly wouldn't call myself um, paranoid or anything on that level, but I am just a hypervigilant type of person and I can really yeah. let my guard down in the mountains. Man, I would really think I'd be hypervigilant at night because I can't see in front of me, you know, <laughs> or as yeah. well. And things go bump um, in the night and uh, a lot of people don't, a lot of people are uncomfortable in the mountains at night because it's very foreign. But to me, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost a like a different land. Yeah. Very comforting place to be. Got you. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, now we're, we're talking about the great outdoors uh, and, and this episode will come out as we will either be in peak or just entering the outdoor season. But you know, you and I would be remiss to not address the big elephant in the room uh, for a couple months or many months, depending on the state that you're in much of the country right now has been in shutdown. Um, even wide open spaces like national and state parks, uh, trails that you're talking about for you, from what you've seen, what has been the overall response? What has been the overall response to out with outdoor nonprofits and organizations when it, in terms of coronavirus? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, regarding, uh, state and federal agencies, they've shut down in, in the truest sense of the word, um, campgrounds, for example, kind of anywhere where people congregate. Mm. And I get it. I understand that. We don't want, you know, 100, 400, 500 strangers kind of hanging out in a campground, coughing on each other. So I understand that. Some have gone so far as to close some backcountry facilities, which are not used often. And if they are used often, it's only by a few people. Um, I am not an epidemiologist. From what I gather at this point, um, the safest place to be is outside. There is no doubt about that. So if you look <laughs> at the extreme end, nursing home, you know, a bunch of sick people packed in together, okay, that is definitely the worst place to be in the United States. The pl safest place to be is outside. So yeah. um, through all of this, 
my organization, Friends of the Trans Adirondack Route, we never discouraged people from hiking ever. Uh, because again, the safest place to be is outside. So you have the state, federal, local agencies kind of shutting down these um, places where people congregate. Okay. As far as the backcountry goes, I see absolutely no evidence that being in the backcountry is unsafe. So you have those official agencies, and then you have just a bunch of hiking clubs. So the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, and of course, my organization, Friends of the Trans Adirondack Route, and they've taken different approaches to this. Some have been quite extreme. So for example, um, some trail organizations promote what they call a challenge. And so a mm. challenge um, in my world would be you hike across the Adirondack Park that Eric Schlimmer designed, okay, and then you get a patch and a certificate. And it's like, hey, congratulations. That was pretty cool way to go. Other trail clubs have said, you know what, even if you do it, we're refusing to recognize your accomplishment. So they've been pretty draconian and it has rubbed a lot of hikers the wrong way because the hikers are saying, well, one, how do you know what's best for me? And two, if this is how I find fulfillment in life, that's what I'm going to do. So I kind of look at so, this. So a, a little bit of, uh, there's been a little bit of a divide in the community. I would think so. And where I see the divide are the actual trail clubs and the actual people who hike. So I think the people who hike, I see a somewhat common voice of, I don't really think this thing is a big deal. The safest place to be is outside and I'm going hiking. And then you have on the other side, the administrators of the land or trail clubs, and they say, you know what, we think it's a big deal and you need to stay home. <laughs> so those are two very different opinions. Uh, my trail club, as far as I know, I, I'm the only person out there saying, just go ahead and hike through all of this. I've said, go ahead and hike. Now, part of that comes from- The only from, person. Interesting. I'd say well, I haven't stumbled across a trail club yet who is saying the safest place to be. Hey, look, we looked at the evidence. It's yeah. okay to be outside. I don't see many people saying that. Now, one of the wow. reasons I say it's okay to hike, and it's not from, you know, I'm not a healthcare worker or anything like that, but I am an expert in mental health. The damage and death and ruin involved with the response to the virus now easily outpace the virus itself. And this is low-hanging fruit. I mean, you could just type into Google and examine the rates of domestic violence, addiction, suicide, strainer relationships, etc. Yeah. And it is absolutely through the roof. It's crazy. And it's very interesting. One of the reasons I was recently hired at this private practice is they're experiencing an influx of people with problems. They're not experiencing an influx of sick people with coronavirus. They have sick people who have faced economic ruin, loss of relationship. They've relapsed for addiction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very complicated. There is a lot of moving parts. I mean, we have almost 400 people in the United States being affected by this, and there's no maybe simple, clear-cut answer. 
Um, but the fact remains, the evidence shows that being outside is okay. And we've known for just about ever that being outside is very good for you in both physical and mental health. Gotcha. I want to just want to preface all that with this is Eric's opinion. This yes. is what he has seen. Very good. Yes, very this interesting. Is, this is merely one man's opinion. Very good. Now, Eric, you, you've spent a lot of time in, in, in Appalachia, especially in the Ad Adirondacks, like you've talked about. Uh, and you, But you've also wrote a lot about it. Six books, like you've said, you have your own publishing company. Uh, real quick, do you publish others too? No, just my own. So what happened uh, briefly, I had my first book come out in 2005. It was with a major publisher. Yeah. And I tell people, <clears throat> they reminded me of my army recruiter. So once you sign the paperwork, they never talk to you again. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Very good. They, they got me to sign the contract and then they disappeared off the face of the planet. And during that publishing process, I felt just kind of ignored. You know, it just kind of, mm. they took over the reins and it was okay at the time because I learned about publishing. I had a very good editor and uh, all that good stuff. But then uh, a few years later, I said, oh, I think I'll write another book and just decide to start my own publishing company. So it's just, it's just me for right now, uh, again, yeah. uh, leading a very simple life. And that transfers to my business as well. So it's me. Absolutely. And then I have a team, you know, editor, typesetter graphic designer, and we just produce these books together. Very good. Um, in addition to, to writing the books, you've you've uh, written extensively on a couple of blog sites. Like I, I read some of your stuff on thetrek.co. Mm -hmm. um, you recently bid farewell to the Adirondacks, right? Since being coming into Colorado. Are you never going back? Um, I, I, you know, who knows? Um, I'm always kind of the last to find out what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> um, I don't imagine living, uh, in the Northeast, um, but I'll certainly go back. You know, I, sure. I lived in the Adirondacks for, uh, about 30 years and there's something very special about that range that it sounds I like, like it's your second, it sounds like it's your second home almost. It really is. Yeah. It's, um, just something special about it. And it's hard to put your finger on. A lot of other hikers will say that. They're like, I don't know. There's just something about the Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York. So I'll certainly go back if uh, if I can afford it and if my work schedule allows it and all these other things to take into consideration. I would like to go back every year in either September or October because there's really no better place to be in the United States than the Northeast during autumn. Interesting. I th you know, uh, I I can I can understand that with the color and the seasons changing there. That whole blue, I mean, the, the whole Shenandoah, Appalachia, yeah, absolutely, it's it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, oh, just stunning. Now, six books you you've written. Uh, I think you're the fourth author I've had on the podcast. Um, actor Dale Dye, uh, who surprisingly is, is an extensive writer uh, author. Uh, Jeff Struker, uh, who who wrote about his experiences in uh, in Somalia, plus he has some nonfiction or fiction and nonfiction. Uh, G. Michael Hoff, he's a he's a post apocalyptic author. Um, being being the others that are that are in the archives, um, and I always ask all of you all you authors, um, what is the what's unknown about writing or publishing that nobody really knows about until you get into the business of writing. 
Yeah. Well, I worked with a uh, typesetter, and the typesetter goes in and and lays out the guts of the book. So you know how much space is going to be between each letter, for example, all these little fine details that people usually don't think about. And Hmm. they gave me – this was my first book with my own company, Beachwood Books. And he gave me a small piece of advice. And he says, Eric, don't ever figure out how many hours it took you to write the book and then how much money you made because you're going to make about three cents a book. So that's what maybe a lot of people (laughs) don't realize is – <clears throat> the amount of work that goes in to produce a book. So my um, my book prior to my last book that was published is a um, it's a very interesting book. Uh, I was living in Albany, which is of course capital city of New York. Uh, sure. It was settled in 1614. Very very old city. And they have 800 streets. And I went in and I historically decoded all 800 street names. So why is this street called Steuben Street? And why is this Sheridan Avenue? Why is this Fountain Avenue, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And, uh, interesting. It's, Very interesting. That you, Man, that's a lot of, yeah. that's a lot of time. <laughs> and, and that's what I was getting to is that was four years of full-time writing. Four years of full-time work, and at the time, I was either a student or working a part-time job on the side, and it's a lot of work, especially nonfiction. So my books are – the majority of my books are history books, and they're dense in information, and a lot of the information is obscure, or the information just isn't out there, and I have to piece together these stories. So when you're writing these heavy, dense historical tomes, it's a a crazy, crazy amount of work. So that was four years and the book's only about 600 pages. I mean, I mean, when you're, when you're talking about, you know, full of uh, obscure information, yeah. Every street on in Albany, New York, that's, that pretty much fits that definition. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny and it's not funny. Um, The, there was a historian in Albany about 15 years ago who wanted to do this and during their research they died so i think they were just killed by the overwhelming (laughs) amount of research and maybe there was an avalanche of you know obscure maps or something in their home but anyway they uh they didn't finish the project and then i came along and i said i was going to do it and nobody believed me and then after four years, I actually did it. And I remember uh, the main newspaper there is the Albany Times Union. And, and the headline when my book came out was went something like, remember the guy who said he was going to write the street name book? He actually did it. <laughs> it was some wow. kind of – everybody doubted you, Eric, but you – It was almost like a mad challenge and you were yeah, like, I'm going to do yeah, this. Yeah, it was very difficult. So may, maybe that's something people don't realize um, – is the amount of work that goes into it. I mean, that book, for example, just the index took almost three months to build. I mean, the index is incredibly extensive. The bibliography has over a thousand sources. So (laughs) when you get these uh, intricate books, it's going to take a while. You know, maybe one other thing people don't realize about writing, but authors do, is how rewarding it is. So 
some people probably assume that authors write books so they can make that their profession. But very, very few authors actually make a living writing books. So there are a lot of big-time authors out there that we can name, and that is their full-time gig. But sure. by far the majority, I mean, it's got to be somewhere around 98%, 99% of writers, it's gas money. That's kind of all yep. they really get out of it. It helps pay the rent. It helps put food on the table. It's kind of like a part-time gig. But with that said, they're not making a living from it. They don't have the fame. They don't have the fortune. They write for just the pure love of writing. I know that's why I do it. Absolutely. I think that's important to get across. Um, Eric, what's your next adventure, man? Um, you're in Colorado. Are you looking at the Continental Divide or the Pacific Crest Trail? Well, again, I've always got a bunch of irons in the fire, and that's with hiking as well. So uh, I'm I'm primarily a, a mountain climber. I've uh, through hiked quite a few long distance trails, but I just like being up in the high country. Now, what I've done for the past 20, 30 years is I would compose a list of mountains, usually in an Excel file. And so, for example, one of the lists I climbed was every peak in the Northeast above 3,000 feet. There are about 800 of them. So I would Jeez. Compose the list. Yeah, it's got to take time just to put the list together. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that was an adventure in itself. So I would uh, compose the list and then go out and hike them all. And here in the West, I'm doing it backwards, which I'm really, really enjoying. So now what I do is I just look at the map and I see a peak, and I'm like, "Hey, that looks cool," and I'll go out and hike it. And then I come back and just wrote down that I hiked it because I, I've been up so many mountains, I kind of forget where I've been. The only form of direction I have that is the, the peaks have to be over 10,000 feet. Um, Colorado has a few thousand mountains yeah. over 10,000 feet. And so I'm just kind of plugging away at those. Uh, I've been up, uh, I think, 60 or yeah, about 60 since I've gotten here in November. So I think each year I'll bang out at least 100. And I'll just kind of see how far I can go with that. Uh, my main goal is to do 500 of them. If I hit 500, then I'll go to 600 and keep increasing. The Colorado does have a couple long distance trails. The most famous, of course, is the Colorado Trail. That's about mm -hmm. 500 miles long. And then we have some other uh, trails that are official, some kind of unofficial routes, like the one I created up in the Adirondacks of you know, maybe 100 miles, 150 miles, 200 miles. So I'll kind of wander around those as well. But for right now, I'm just kind of getting to know my new home. So actually today, mm -hmm. I'm heading out for three days up in the high country and just kind of checking stuff out. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I was very list-driven and just very driven, um, overly focused uh, personality. So I have to get up this peak or if I'm going to drive all the way to Vermont, I have to go for five days. And here it's uh, more relaxed. I mean, I obviously hike quite a bit still and I'm still focused, but um, it's more just exploring this new home and starting a second hiking life. Mm. Just kind of walking around, checking stuff out. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I think I had a conversation with, with one uh, 
girl one time. It was, uh, if you really want to know what's going on in a guy's mind. And she goes, yeah, absolutely. I was going, nothing. We just, <laughs> we just kind of, kind of just walk around and check stuff out. <laughs> yeah, not much. <laughs> um, any, any experiences out towards out West, even more, you know, more West on the Pacific crest? Not much hiking out there. Um, the only hiking I've done in the Sierra Nevada, well, actually I have done quite a bit. Um, well, I've hiked the Tahoe Rim Trail, and the Tahoe Rim Trail goes around Lake Tahoe. Uh, the western mm-hmm. half is in California. The eastern half is in Nevada. That's 165 miles, so I through-hiked that, and then I hiked the 12 10,000-foot peaks that surround Lake Tahoe. I've also been up the highest peak in California, uh, so just that was just a couple-day hike. That's really what's the that, What's that, Shasta? It's uh, Mount Whitney. Yeah, oh, wow. Mount Whitney. Yeah, Shasta is not yeah. far behind it. Shasta is over 14,000 feet as well. And yeah. I was out there because I'm working on uh, climbing the highest peak in each of the lower 48 states. So yeah. that's what brought me out there. And I'm just about done with that. But uh, you got, I was going to say, you got a lot of lists, man. <laughs> you got a lot of yeah, lists. Yeah, I have a lot of Excel files uh, on my computer. <laughs> Um, well, if you ever get out towards Washington State, couple couple recommendations. Of course, you have Rainier. Of course, you have uh, Mount St. Helens. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, Mount St. Helens. But um, if you ever get up to the Olympics, um, I was going to say if you're ever up that way, there's one that I want to do that everyone does back home. Uh, it's Mount Colonel Bob. Okay, uh, I think I just wanted. I think I just want to do it just because of the name. But um, yeah, it, it's. I mean, compared to what you're talking about, it's it's only a ten miler. You know, if I'm not in space, it's a day hike. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's it's definitely if I was a really good into hiking, it's the, probably the first one of the ones I'd want to tackle because again, one the name, two, uh, it's just something that everyone does back home. So uh, if yeah. you ever get out that way, there's a couple suggestions. Noted, Eric. It, Give me a skill uh, or, or maybe a veteran life hack, something that you learned in service that you carry with you today. Hmm, good question. Yeah, I think what I got out of the military is my stick to itness. <laughs> uh, I, again, found out what I could do in the military, and now I do it out here. So whether it's writing books, so again, four years of full time research for an, a ridiculously obscure. Subject. A book about place names <laughs> or hiking 15,000 mountains, uh, I'm now able to push myself pretty far. But look, I got to be honest. The great thing about <clears throat> being in the civilian world is I can kind of check out whenever I want. You know, if I'm hiking in the mountains and it starts to rain, I can go home. I find that a luxury. So I think it's creating this balance of being tough, uh, resilient confident, but then also realizing that, you know, why I write books and why I hike and why we all do everything we love is just for the love of it. So we have to make sure it's fun. Absolutely. Very good. Eric, is there, I mean, we've, we've talked about uh, maybe a nonprofit that you've, you've been involved in, but is there, is there a veteran nonprofit or individual or veteran individual who you, who you, whom you've worked with or have had experience with whom you'd like to mention? I do. I do. So without this organization, I would not be sitting in Colorado today. This organization is Huts for Vets, and they're headquartered out of Basalt, Colorado. So how I got involved in 
Huts for Vets. About a year ago, I graduated with my master's. I got my license to practice as a therapist. And I actually called them and I said, hey, do you need a therapist to go on your wilderness therapy programming with veterans? Mm. And I talked to the founder, Paul Anderson, and he says, no, we're not looking for somebody. And then we just got to talking about my military experience and the mental health challenges I've had and the setbacks and loss, you know, just kind of life happens. You know, I was just kind of talking about what I've experienced over the last few years. And he says, well, you know, we can't offer you a job, but you sound like a great candidate, which took me by surprise because, <laughs> you know, I kind of think as myself as um, vulnerable being a big time hiker and a therapist, you know, we like to fix ourselves. Yeah. So I went on the trip and just fell in love with Colorado and decided to move out here. And um, speaking about many irons in the fire, I've got this side gig um, called the Hiking Veteran. And uh, people can you know, donate any amount they want to support my expeditions. And at the end of 2020, 60%, I'm just going to write a check and give it to Huts for Vets. So when I'm out in the mountains, I'm actually raising funds for this organization Huts for Vets is awesome. It's one of many wilderness therapy programs out there for veterans, yeah. uh, but it's just it's just great. I'm proud to be an alumnus, and I know they're going to do even better things. Very good. Eric, is there – we've covered a lot of ground. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, is there anything else that I might have missed or anything that you think the listeners um, out there uh, – something you'd like to share? Um, we, we might've touched on it, uh, but I think it's important that, um, I think there are a lot of veterans and of course, non-veterans out there who are facing some kind of challenge in life, trauma, anxiety, depression, and loss are kind of the four common things that I see mm. in my work as a therapist. And it's good to keep in mind that there are non-traditional forms of recovery. So medication is great. Talk therapy is great. But you know what? So is hiking. And so is wilderness therapy. And so is yoga. And so is kickboxing. And so is et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think good physical health and good mental health is not just maybe one or two ingredients but it's more of a complex recipe. So it's a little bit of this. It's a little bit of that. Surround yourself with good people, for example. Stay active. Eat healthy. Do yoga. Read. You know, there are all these little things that you can do to improve your life. I'm a big fan of uh, wilderness therapy just because it fits with my two loves. You know, I'm out in the mountains and people are telling me about their feelings. Wow. That's just perfect for me. So I usually don't give advice. I'm just offering a soft suggestion is that there are a lot of little things that everybody, especially veterans, can do to improve their lives. Just a super interesting conversation, and I was happy to bring that one to you. I want to thank Eric for coming on Born the Battle. And for more information on Eric, you can find it at thehikingveteran.com. I wanted to say Viking veteran for some reason, but it is the hiking veteran.com. Make sure you actually put the word the in the URL, the hiking veteran.com. Our born the battle veteran of the week was nominated by a listener who shot us a nomination to our podcast at va.gov inbox. 
Email said, I'm a relative newbie to the Born the Battle podcast, and I've always learned something from every episode. And I've also really enjoyed your veteran of the week feature. Always a story I appreciate hearing. So I thought you might be interested in a unit, a family unit that is, as I know a military family with an interesting twist. Four members, mom and dad, and their two sons are all Navy and are all Lieutenant Commanders. The dad, Rick Crabb, Lieutenant Commander, U.S. Navy, retired. Rick is a Mustang, having started out as a storekeeper who got commissioned as a medical services officer. He was a planner who spent most of his career with the Marine Corps. Raw. One of Rick's main post-retirement activities is serving with the Patriot Guard Riders in North Texas. The mom, Jeanette Crabb, Lieutenant Commander, U.S. Naval Reserve, retired. Jeanette also started out enlisted as an active duty corpsman, Ra, who also got commissioned as a Navy nurse. Following her retirement, Jeanette continued as a civilian RN, only just re- recently retiring after 45 years or so. Son 1, Justin Crabb, Lieutenant Commander, U.S. Navy. He is a future veteran as he is an active duty service warfare officer he and his wife, Riley, are proud parents of two sons. And son number two, Jacob Crabb, Lieutenant Commander, U.S. Navy. A future veteran and a current supply officer who served with the SEAL team at one point in his career. He recently graduated from the Naval War College. He, he and his wife, Alyssa, are also proud parents of two boys. I am certain none of these four would seek any recognition, which is why I hope you will recognize them. An amazing and patriotic family, to be sure. Crabb family... Thank you for your service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send us an email, just like this listener did, to podcast at va.gov. Include a short write-up and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to computer, phone, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, RallyPoint, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you will always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care.